Hi, you're listening to the Wing Women podcast, brought to you by journalists and best mates, Charlie Gowans Eglinton, that's me, and Frankie Gradden, that's her. Frankie, how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you very much. How are you? I'm in Dorset. I'm in a holiday home. My parents found the last holiday home on the British coast, I think, that was unbooked. So I'm here with my family and Ellie the dog. It's been nice to be outside of my flat for a bit. I love my flat, but I've seen quite a lot of it. It's nice for us to have a little break. And Dorset is just a revelation. I've been swimming in the ocean, wearing a little zippy Bowden long sleeve swimsuit. I've been on lots of big walks, drunk a lot of wine, I've eaten a lot of cheese. We're really near Golden Cap, which is the highest bit of British coastland. How are you, Franks? What have you been up to? We went for a little adventure over the weekend. Finally made it to North Street Kitchen in Foy, down in Cornwall. So North Street Kitchen, oh, it was fantastic. It's the same duo that set up Jolene Premier Western's Laundry in North London, which is our favourite restaurant. I don't want to call it a chain. Favourite restaurant group. They have two new restaurants in Foy. They've got Fitzroy, which is open for dinner, slightly zhuzhier. And then North Street Kitchen, which they describe as a seafood shack. I'd say it's much more elevated than a seafood shack. It's, I think, an old boat workhouse. It's got those huge wooden doors that slide across. And then it's just one big room. And it's gorgeous full of Londoners, didn't hear one local accent the whole time we were there. It's an absolute London hotspot, but for good reason. The food is delicious. They sell just seafood. No need to book, just rock up, have a crab roll. Oh, I think there's something quite sexy about a seafood shack. Actually, I'm super near. I've looked up where I am and it's called Morecambe Lake. I'm actually super near. Mark Hicks has now got a seafood truck. I read about this in the Telegraph magazine. It's five minutes down the road, so I might pop along there a bit later. Treat myself. I had my first pregnancy perk. We turned up at three o'clock hoping we'd missed the lunchtime rush, but it was a sunny day, it was busy, there was not a table to be seen. I wandered up to the woman at the door. And by wandered, you mean waddled? I waddled up, yeah. Like a little duck. Frankie Puddle Duck. Ben says I'm moving like a (laughs) weeble now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you little puppet. Anyway... So I asked the lady, are we okay to just loiter and wait? Because, you know, loitering is different now in the age of social distancing. I didn't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. She was happy for us to loiter at a safe distance. And then a lovely gentleman jumped up and said, please have my seat. I'm just finishing my drink. I'll finish it standing up over here. Oh! So him and his partner leapt up i was mortified apparently i went bright red i sort of said no 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 it's fine i can stand but he was insistent on my pregnant condition that me and ben could sit down immediately how nice is that oh that's lovely i was so taken by the kindness and generosity of that lovely man great stuff speaking of drinking what are you drinking now so tonight i have got a belvoir Rosé and elderflower presse. How is that? Slightly fizzy, not too fizzy though, because the side effect of pregnancy, very windy pops these days, Chaz. I'm so sorry to hear that. The windy pops. So I've got to go easy on the bubbles, in a tumbler, (laughs) over some ice. It's got a nice pinky colour and it's very refreshing. What are you drinking? Well, because it is 
quite cold here. I must say, I've escaped the heatwave in London thinking, oh, heatwave in London, awful. Wouldn't it be lovely to be by the sea in a heatwave? The heatwave isn't here, is it? It's not come. No. It's not come to the coast. It's very cold here and misty. I can't see my hand in front of my face, really, if I go outside. So I'm having a glass of red wine. I'm having a Terra Organica Primitivo. It's organic. That's what organica means. Just if you were wondering. Don't worry, I'm fluent. (laughs) It's a 2019. It's super heavy and delicious and good with pasta or dodgy things that you want when it's cold basically and it's particularly good to have in front of a log fire log fires in august there you go well you know we're on our summer holes wouldn't be britain would it <laughs> Trust me i've been lying on the beach in a wetsuit under a towel <laughs> freezing to death <laughs> oh god what have you been reading living breathing this week i've actually been shopping Chaz. have you in person online well my parents did some shopping vicarious shopping vicarious shopping i didn't have any part of it but i was a beneficiary of their shopping trip to the big tesco's where sorry i just did the trucker honk honk um but i did it silently i just love a big supermarket and i haven't been to the to this particular big tesco's but apparently it is similar to the giant hypermarkets in france and spain leclerc carrefour where you go in you can buy a salami you can buy five different cheeses, you can buy a t-shirt and a microwave. And actually one of our mantras comes from a Spanish hypercore when an American couple were walking around and it was so large, they were flagging midway through the shop and she turned to him and said, do you want a sausage to snack on? <laughs> and that has stayed with us because I often want a sausage to snack on. And I think that's a good way to live your life, actually. She then followed up with, better hustle, Larry. And that is also one to live by. Because we do need to hustle in our lives, you know? All day, every day. Inspirational. Anyway, so they went to the Tesco's and they came back with some swimming shoes for me. Yes! They're the, the little wetsuit material, zippy kind of slippers that you pop on. And it means you can walk on the seafloor or on the coastline without getting little shells and stones stuck in the soles of your feet. This purchase got me thinking about the new mood of swimwear. You've alluded to it already, this podcast episode. You've been talking about your zippy swimsuit that's a little bit like a wetsuit. I have noticed lots of people wearing this genre of swimsuit or rash vests or swim shorts or board shorts. And I'm enjoying very much that this is the summer of practical functional swimwear and we've moved away from silly swimming costumes because don't you just think swimwear got too silly it did get quite silly also you can get a second degree burn off a little gold medallion dangling on your tum tum (laughs) can't you for the last few years it's been about cutouts it's been about cold shoulder bits it's been about legs cut up so high that how you retrieve that strip of material from between your buttocks is beyond me. I think we have Love Island to blame for a lot of this. Love Island though, they'll take a normal bikini and you'll be like, yeah, fine, normal bikini. What could they do with that that was abnormal? And then they wear it just under the nipple and do the underboob. Is that a thing? What's happening? For me personally, gravity would win there. And it would continue to slip. And then I'd just be wearing it as a necklace, basically. 
But they seem to be able to suspend them just under the nipple. Interesting. And then not get a half crescent burn on just the lower half of their boob. Do you think that's what they're doing? They're trying to avoid tan lines. So they're like, okay, I'm going to tan the under half of my boob today. And then tomorrow I'm going to pop it up so high. And then in fact, all you're getting is a little slat mark across the nipple easily remedied by a slash down the front swimsuit my instagram feed normally at this time of the year is full of these silly silly swimsuits i've tried a couple in my time i'm not judging i've done it i've thought will this backless strapless number it looks great when posing perfectly but as soon as you move off the sun lounger or get in the pool out pops your boob disaster this year, this functional swimwear is taking charge. And I'm just wondering, have staycations changed swimwear? I'm very into this. I'm very into the summer of the wetsuit. I am cosy in my zippy wetsuit. Mine's long sleeved. It zips up to the neck from boob area. And it's just a swimsuit shape at the bottom. So your legs are out, but the rest of you is covered up. So you're much warmer. But also, nothing's going to fall out. Mm. You don't have to keep an eye on whether or not the briefs have fallen a bit down or a bit up and your cracks out or your pubes are out or any of that nonsense. You don't have to worry about the top falling off when you get hit by a big wave. Are you still wearing your dad's swim shorts or have you upgraded? No, I am still wearing my dad's swim shorts. Nothing really fits me anymore. I came down here five weeks ago with the intention of saying two weeks and in the time I've actually been down here I've grown out of all of the clothes I bought so swimwear will stretch but only so far so I'm in dad's swim shorts but I'm kind of blending in I mean you know if I was on the beach in Marbella it would be a disaster but because I'm paddling off a craggy shoreline down in freezing cold Devon a pair of (laughs) pantaloon-esque swim shorts complete with swim shoes is the order of the day. The good thing about a dense mist as well is that when you're walking back up the beach, instead of worrying that everyone's looking at you doing your sort of really dodgy Ursula Andress moment or, you know, Halle Berry emerging in a Bond film in a swimsuit, no one can see you. No one can see you because you're just <laughs> in a dense, dense mist. <laughs> but it is interesting, more so than any other time of the year, Instagram and holiday posting on social media really does shape what our holiday wardrobe is. And we are seeing that so many pieces that you take on holiday are geared towards getting that perfect Instagram shot. So it's that giant straw hat, it's silly swimsuits, it's a see-through crochet dress, a funny little see-through shopping bag, all of those things that in real life don't work but when you're on a photogenic beach in Mykonos you can get away with it and I think that's really informed how summer dressing looks through a fashion lens this is what summer dressing has become this year I know people are still traveling but nowhere near as much it's interesting to see how much it's changed because you would look like a wally walking around the British coastline in a bikini and wedges how dare you that's actually what I had planned for tomorrow got some gold top pants a matching bikini top that I'm just gonna hoik up and raffia wedge so nice what have been your style hit of this summer well you're completely right it's all about practicality at the moment I've been wearing loads of jumpsuits so I have an amazing LF Marquee Whistles jumpsuit that's navy blue it's quite stiff and a-line it looks quite smart but it's just really easy and 
just putting that on with Birkenstocks, putting everything on with Birkenstocks or Tevez. Pockets, lightweight jackets, a cap for when it's raining. I am doing Dog Walker about to discover the body in Midsummer Murders. Oh, That's me fabulous. in Abney Park Cemetery every morning. I do have some really great Charlie Dimmock overalls. And actually, speaking of Dimmock, bras I'm really not going to bring back. So I'm mostly just doing a sports bra or a soft triangle. But also when I'm in my own home, no bra at all. That's my vibe. What's yours? Midi dresses have been a lifesaver. What did we do before midi dresses? What did we actually do before the long sleeve mid-calf dress was invented? What did we wear? So I've been doing those sort of dresses that you can layer up. Because I think when you are holidaying or summering in the UK, you've just got to be prepared to layer you can have four seasons in just the one day there will be rain at some point there'll be a shacket over the top there'll be a jumper over the top i'm all about a summer jumper I love a chunky summer knit with a denim short and an all-terrain sandal i've discovered shorts this summer we discussed shorts last year and you were firmly on the side of the no fence that's because they're not the most flattering thing for me the most flattering thing for me is probably that midi dress skims rather than clings i'm bottom heavy i've got knees that look like potato smileys so shorts are just not the one for me i never wear a short dress and i never wear shorts and i didn't own shorts and then i just got really bored of that and really bored of dressing based on thinking my body is too hideous for anyone to see my legs and feeling mortified if I'm ever in anything short and it ties into swimwear as well and not wanting people to see me in swimwear and just being mortified of that and feeling like I need to sprint down to the beach even on hot sand or very sharp pebbles and it's just boring isn't it and that's not the way to live your life so I decided that nobody is going to have a heart attack if they see my potato smiley knees and shorts are really comfy and especially when it's hot they're just a really useful thing. And I like that slightly more casual thing, a bit more chucked on, a bit less feminine, a bit less overtly feminine than a pretty floral dress, which I do wear. But at the moment, I'm just really in the mood to wear a pair of shorts with a big baggy jumper, bare legs, and then a chunky sandal, great pair of sunglasses, some lippy. This is the mood I want. Or shorts under a jacket. So I just decided I should stop thinking that my body isn't right for shorts and just wear them. And I have, as yet, not caused anyone to die at the sight of me. Of course you haven't. But then that's another thing. Do you think staycationing and holidaying in this different way has taken the pressure off that horrible beach body ready concept? I certainly haven't felt it in the same way this year at all. I can't remember the last time I did my bikini line. And I certainly haven't tried to do any fake tanning or body buffing, anything that I would usually think, oh, God, the week before I knew I was going away. Oh, God, I've got to start doing that. Have you found that? Yes. Well, I mean, getting beach ready for Dorset beaches. I wasn't looking at myself in the same way as I would look at myself getting ready for a beach in Spain or Greece and thinking, oh, God, A, I'm going to be so pale because I am very fair and... Then everyone always looks at you like Brit abroad, but also it's not very slimming to be so pale. And B, yes, feeling like you have to be kind of buffed and pedicured and not have cracked top of a sourdough loaf heels, which I do. Whereas in Dorset, I kind of just thought, oh, well, 
it's fine, isn't it? Dorset. I feel like the beach vibe here is a bit more rugged. It is. And this could inspire a whole new idea of what getting beach ready is. And I like it. I'm sure there will be a time when we want to go back to wearing macrame dresses and tasseled caftans. See, that implies that we've ever worn either of those things. I've definitely worn a tasseled caftan in my life. Probably bought from the airport accessorised at a last minute panic before I boarded my EasyJet flight to wherever I was going. I might tie some puka shells around my ankle as a nod to abroad holidays, you know. <laughs> I'm quite in the mood for that. It's a great vibe. It is a vibe. What have you been reading, Chaz? I read a piece on refinery 29 this week that struck a chord with me and it is by my old colleague vicky spratt and the headline is has coronavirus finally put a stop to toxic spirituality i'm hooked basically this piece is about that whole culture of positive thinking and that whole culture of manifesting and people reading books like the secret and putting their successes down to positive thought and the power of positivity and the power of willing something to be putting it on your vision board or speaking affirmations to yourself vicky talks about how it's occasionally quite tempting to buy into that she says you know maybe if i listen to this positive pop anthem before a work meeting maybe that will help me and it embolden me and i'll be more able to dominate in that meeting but she talks about how actually the pandemic has put into perspective how much we can't control and when you're thinking that you can will something into happening, that your positivity and your thoughts and your affirmations can will something into happening, then you almost put the responsibility for what does happen onto yourself and how damaging that can be. So Vicky says, the problem with this particular brand of self-help spirituality is that when you turn the focus onto yourself, you become the problem. You're what's wrong with every difficult situation you find yourself in. Everything bad that happens in your life is your fault. You're the one who ruins your relationships by not being grateful enough to be in them. It has nothing to do with the fact that they're actually just really hard. You're the one who can't buy a house because you can't see the housing affordability crisis in a positive light. You aren't as successful as you hoped you'd be, not because wages have stagnated in recent years and fallen in real terms, but because you just didn't manifest hard enough. I think there's just so much in that because we are supposed to view every setback, every difficulty as a challenge and as an opportunity to do better. And the culture that we're living in now is okay so somebody tells you no or okay so you're in a really difficult situation but how can you turn that into your eureka moment and you hear all these ted talks about people hitting rock bottom and how that for them was the catalyst for this brilliant life and now that they're delivering this ted talk on a stage and they're a millionaire and they travel the world and whatever they've achieved all of these successes and I do think that can be a really damaging culture especially right now when we have absolutely no control obviously over the pandemic but also vicky talks about gendered inequality about women taking on invisible but vital labor as she calls it and we're told that if we just positive think our way out of the situation that's how we can achieve everything it takes the emphasis off what is really holding us back in a lot of these situations i think that's a really interesting point that maybe i hadn't thought about much i do believe in positive thinking whilst I'm not someone who has mantras I do have go-to's that I reach for when I need a confidence boost and sometimes that is music sometimes that's clothes sometimes that's makeup sometimes that is writing my achievements down I have something called an achievement cv where I write down all of the wins I've had whether they're big or little 
And when I'm feeling negative, I look back and use those as proof that I am successful and I use it to bolster my confidence levels. And I do find that you're often your own worst enemy in situations in terms of having an, a, a particular mindset that can be sabotaging. And for me, being in a positive headspace means that I maximise my capability, which means often I can reach a level of success that perhaps I couldn't have if I was feeling defeatist. So I do definitely think that is a space for all of that and for vision boards and for manifesting and for focusing on what it is that you want. But then I do agree that there's a really valid point there in accepting that some things are completely out of your control, no matter how much positive thinking you do, if you only earn X amount of wage and a deposit for a house requires X amount of money, you can positive think your way as much as you can into wanting to purchase that property, but it's not going to happen. Something else has to has to shift. Circumstances have to move in a different way for you to be able to attain that particular goal. That's just an example. Things outside of your control mean you can't reach perhaps the goal that you want. And I do think it's important to remember that so that when things perhaps don't work out, and this year so many things will not be working out how we want them to because of coronavirus and the impact that that has had and is continuing to have, for us to not then blame ourselves and think, oh, I just didn't wish hard enough. I didn't try hard enough. I think that's a very important thing to remember. But then I think that in turn, remembering that, keeping that in mind and accepting that is going to then keep you feeling more positive to move forward. Well, I think as well, your achievement CV, that's celebrating successes that you have already had. That's celebrating work you have already done and reminding yourself that you are capable, more than capable, of doing whatever it is that might be freaking you out at that moment in time that you might be doubting in yourself. What can be damaging, and this piece talks about it, and, and Vicky's spoken to a professor of psychology called Gabrielle Ottingen, who's the author of Rethinking Positive Thinking, Inside the New Science of Motivation. She's spoken to her about what it is like to build this fantasy future for yourself, not based on things you have already achieved, but on things that you want to achieve. And here's a quote from Ottingen. In terms of mental health, the more positively people fantasised into the future, the better they feel right now in that moment, but the more depressed they get over time. We have found that when people think positively and manifest the future they want in this way, they feel that they have already accomplished it. In their mind, they're already there. They've already experienced feelings of success and that makes them relaxed. A, you might actually strip yourself of some of the motivation to achieve something because you feel like you've already achieved it. But B, you feel like that success belongs to you. And then if a roadblock comes along or a setback comes along that you can't control, your company folds that you work for, or there's a global pandemic that causes a recession, then you feel depressed because you've lost something that actually you never had. That's an interesting point. I think perhaps it's having the two things work in tandem. So having all of the methods to keep yourself feeling buoyant and positive and in, in that can-do attitude, but then also realising that obviously you need to 
actually make it happen. And it's just that that positive mental attitude facilitates you actually making it happen. The two have to come hand in hand. This is why it's so important to share the stories of how you got to somewhere. For example, Elizabeth Day's How to Fail podcast. That's why that's so brilliant, because you hear from these successful people and you hear about their failures, which are part of the course on the road to achieving whatever great thing it is that they're going to achieve. And to make sure you hear those stories of the sacrifices, disappointments that they've experienced along the way, and just building up a realistic picture of what it takes to get somewhere. We are in this culture of the overnight success story, and that's very much fueled by social media. You tend to not see the bits that are hard, ugly. You just see the finished, polished, final product. And it's very easy to think, oh my God, that just happened for that person. And why has that not happened for me? Whilst I do very much believe in the power of positive thinking, and I would always say to somebody, have a toolkit of things to reach for, to make themselves feel good as they possibly can and as positive as they possibly can. It's having that balance of, but it's it's also going to take quite a lot of grit and determination. Do you do any mantras, affirmations, blah, blah, blah? No. And I think the opposite to the positive thinking culture that we have now isn't negative thinking. I don't think not wanting to buy into this manifesting your future thing means that you are thinking negatively, but perhaps you're perhaps you're just a bit more pragmatic. You're a very positive person. You always think, I can get this done. Yeah, I do. But not based on if I think positively enough, it will happen or I will draw good energy towards me. I, and I completely agree with you that you have to think positively. And actually, if you're thinking negatively, you can talk yourself into a corner and feel like you can't do something. I think the positive thinking industry is a different thing that tells you that the way you look at the world dictates how successful you'll be and that actually you can just manifest your way towards what you want. I'm quite positive, but I think that's just because I trust myself. I think I'm good at what I do. That has taken me a while to get there and I don't always feel that way. My version of positive thinking is to trust that I can do something not anything. I couldn't just do something that I have no grounding for and no preparation for and no readiness for. But my goals are things that are attainable. They are things that I can control to an extent. And yes, I can't control recession or getting paid on time or any of that stuff about being a freelancer. But I can control how hard I work and how much I put in to something. And I know that if I log a certain amount of hours, that will pay off for me. I do think that actually it's not very normal for women to say I think I'm really good at what I do and when I say that people are often surprised and I feel like I'm being a smug git. And yeah I have moments of insecurity but I think women should be able to think god I'm good at this actually and I'm doing a good job and I'm delivering and that I have the successes that I have because I worked for them not because of positive thinking not because of the universe delivering them to me because I worked for them and because I'm good and I wish women were able to say I'm good more and I hope that people think it and are just not saying it because they don't want to sound like a smug git like me but we should all know that we're good 
and feel confident in that. I couldn't agree with you more, Charlie. What are your recommendations this week, Franks? So my first recommendation is the Michelle Obama podcast. Have you listened to this yet? I haven't. No, I haven't. So it's new. There are two episodes so far. And this week's episode is with Michelle Norris, who is a journalist and a friend. And you can really tell in the conversation that they're having, that they know each other. It's really relaxed. It's very, very thoughtful. It's very open. They talk about lockdown and the pandemic and coping mechanisms that they've used to get through the time so far. Things like establishing routines, um, keeping old routines, but also establishing new routines. Michelle talks about how Brack and their daughters are doing lots of puzzles and playing card games. Always really interesting to just get an insight into the family life of such a high profile family. It's in, it's fascinating, isn't it? She talks about doing DIY waxing and nails. So it's very open. It's really open. For someone who is so high profile and has been in the public eye, it's incredibly personal, which is, is very warm and engaging. She also talks about the emotional impact of the last few months, not just related to the pandemic, but also the racial unrest and the Black Lives Matter movement. She says that she has actually been dealing with a form of low-grade depression. And she talks about how constantly waking up to news of a member of the Black community being killed, being subject to violence, being dehumanised. She says, it's a weight I haven't felt in my life for a while. She speaks very movingly about that. The two talk about how society had almost been lulled into a false sense of security, that things were better in terms of race relations. Michelle Norris makes the point that Michelle Obama is a manifestation of progress. You know, Barack was the first black president. She was the first black first lady. They've been voted in by the people and they were such a symbol of progress and hope but then we've had this come along and reveal that there is so much that still divides us and they talk about how crushing and disappointing that is but then also elements that they are not surprised Michelle Obama talks about the signs of racism and prejudice that she witnessed whilst Barack was in office. They also talk about the wealth gap and how that has affected people in in the pandemic in terms of people having to go to work, not having a choice to stay at home, people not having access to medicine. Michelle Norris uses a really interesting phrase. She calls it the us and them pandemic. It's so easy when you're in a position of privilege to think, well, it's all okay for me. Why can't I go and get my hair cut? Why can't I go to a restaurant? Why do I need to wear my mask when I go outside? Everything's fine. I'm looking around my immediate area and everything's fine but it's so different for so many people and acknowledging that and making sure that we are working as a whole as a global community to stamp this out as much as we possibly can it's a it's a really thought-provoking conversation I really really recommend it I haven't listened to the one with Brack yet that is on my playlist for when we finish this because I cannot wait to hear that conversation And I just want to be inside the dynamic of the Michelle Barack (laughs) relationship. Sounds fabulous. So my second recommendation is a piece for Harper's Bazaar. And it is called Bipolar Disorder, Why We Need to Talk About It After the Headlines Fade. 
And this is written by a writer called Sally Newell, who is actually an ex-colleague of mine, but she was diagnosed with bipolar in 2017. The news hook of the piece is Kanye West and his recent public appearance when he announced his presidential candidacy and the subsequent social media outbursts towards members of his family. And then Kim Kardashian's response where she asked for compassion and empathy from the social media community in light of Kanye's own bipolar diagnosis. Sally makes the point that Kanye has sparked a conversation around bipolar disorder. She makes the point that this is a disorder that gets talked about every now and again when it's linked to a celebrity. In the past, we've had Selena Gomez, Catherine Zeta-Jones has talked about it, Carrie Fisher has talked about it. But what she says in her piece is that this is something that we need to keep discussing because awareness is so low yet the proportion of those who have it in the UK are actually relatively high. She says that the charity Bipolar UK reports that around 3 million people in the UK have bipolar which is roughly 1 in 50 and that recent research suggests as many as 5% of us are on the bipolar spectrum. The piece is a really good explainer of what bipolar is. Bipolar comes in three forms, bipolar 1, bipolar 2 and cyclothymia. And she gives a very clear explainer of what each one is. Although they're all categories of bipolar, they each have their own characteristics and indicators. And she talks about how long it takes for a diagnosis to happen. So on average, it takes nine years. She talks about that there's a lot of underfunding around this. There's a lot of inadequate training around this. She speaks about her own journey with being diagnosed and the complications and the roundabout route that it took for her to get her correct diagnosis but then she also acknowledges that as someone who was white and middle class she was coming from privilege and that it was still a convoluted journey and that it is a hell of a lot worse for ethnic minorities people in poverty as she speaks about it it is a condition that completely rules your life and if not managed can be devastating but that it can be managed and she is proof of that she lives with it and has a successful job has successful relationships and it's just the importance of of being aware of it and it being able to be managed it's very educational very insightful so much is in there that i just had no idea about so i thought it was a really worthwhile piece to have a read of that sounds really interesting because we do only read about bipolar disorder i think when it isn't being managed and when matters really come to a head and there is especially with celebrities like with kanye west and there's this incredibly public moment and you can see everything that he's battling with and his family are speaking out against him and there's this Twitter war being waged. And I think for that to be the only time that we read about bipolar disorder and for that to be the only association we have of it, to be these celebrity moments that are then covered in the tabloids, that's incredibly damaging. And that must be incredibly difficult for someone who has bipolar disorder to have the people around them think that that, that is what it is. I think there's still, we're very, very good at talking about mental health, but there's still a lot we need to understand about the nuances of disorders and mental illness so i think this was a very brave piece for her to write but very valuable thanks sally 
What are your recommendations, Chaz? Right, my first is actually an article that Jack Monroe wrote. So last week we discussed Boris's plan to tackle obesity and we discussed uh, a little bit the wealth gap and how that affects how we eat and how that is usually not considered when we talk about you know, how healthy it is to batch cook or just make everything from fresh and how society will often shame people for eating convenience foods, especially if they're on lower incomes, for eating these convenience foods that are sometimes lower in nutrition without ever thinking about the why of why people do eat differently. Jack Monroe is the author of numerous recipe books now, A Girl Called Jack, The 100 Delicious Budget Recipes, Cooking on a Bootstrap. So Jack's first cookbook came about when they tweeted a response to a, to a journalist who shared on Twitter that uh, they were writing a story about food and Jack tweeted that they had a £7 weekly budget for them and their son. So Jack's experience of eating on a budget is completely first-hand. The article that I read was Jack's response to Annunziata Rees-Mogg's tweet. Annunziata is the sister of Jacob Rees-Mogg and an MEP and pointed out that raw potatoes are cheaper to buy than oven chips by 50-odd P. So Jack's response is this article, which is called You Don't Batch Cook When You're Suicidal, and then brackets, formally, The Price of Potatoes and the Value of Compassion. It's on their website, cookingonabootstrap.com. It speaks incredibly open about their experience of poverty, of living in poverty, of trying to provide for a child, while living in poverty, of their route out of poverty and writing that first cookbook on a mobile phone because they didn't have a computer, of housing insecurity. It's so open and it's such a brilliant read. And it's a bit of a spoiler, but I want to read you a quote from near the end. Please do read the whole piece. My main point is that poverty and privilege are largely accidental. You don't choose to be born into an income bracket, a country pile, a housing estate, a double-barrelled name or a damp tenement bedsit. But ignorance is a choice. And choosing to use your privileges to patronise people whose lives are entirely beyond your experience and comprehension is a choice. Choosing to use the powers vested in you by the constituencies you serve to deprive those same constituents of light, heating, food and home security is a willful and deliberate act. And it has to stop because I am one of millions of people who has lived in bitter, life-changing, cruel poverty in this country. And I will continue to tell my story with all of the uncomfortable details and horror and fury until that changes for the better. And if your response to people in crisis is to simply lecture paternalistically about how you would be better at being poor than they would, I suggest you put your money where your flapping great mouth is and give it all away. It's such a moving piece and an important read because it helps us all to recognise our own privilege in whatever degree that we experience privilege, in whatever degree of wealth that we have, and to understand a situation that is different to ours. Anyway, I, I thought it was completely brilliant. My second recommendation is based on a Netflix show called Indian Matchmaking. This was trending on Netflix last week and I watched it. Shows like Love is Blind or The Millionaire Matchmaker are a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine. And Indian Matchmaking is this glossy Netflix show and it follows this matchmaker who is 
working in India, but also travels over to America to work as a matchmaker there too. It's looking at arranged marriages. You see her meet with her clients who are the parents, not the person who is going to get married in some of the instances. And they are talking through what they want from a prospective daughter-in-law and that she needs to be X, Y, Z. They're talking about skin colour and they're talking about weight and they have this idea of what they want. And I then read this piece, Indian Matchmaking, The Dark Reality Behind Your Latest Netflix Binge by Bahika Barua on vogue.co.uk. She speaks about her personal experience of having friends of hers agree to arrange marriages and about the incredibly problematic side of this show. She writes, Indian matchmaking for many viewers has only amplified the way in which women are raised to be traded like cattle. In that sense, it reinforces dated stereotypes about Indian culture without interrogating them. There is also something intrinsically uncomfortable about the way this reality has been packaged up for entertainment purposes, quenching the thirst of a Western audience with a voyeuristic interest in exotic traditional practices, such as arranged marriages, and a desire to binge on highly watchable television. And I think these reality shows so often have a really problematic element and the millionaire matchmaker is incredibly transactional and Love Island, we've seen what that does to the mental health of people on that show and how they are attacked and and vilified on social media when they come out. And this piece talks about obviously how something that we see as Westerners as exotic is then being glamorised for TV. But also what was most problematic for me about the series was what seems to me quite a universal thing, that actually it's the women, and women had approached this matchmaker as well to find matches for them, whereas the men were just asked to give this list of what do you want, and they're just sent women. One of the young men is being sent hundreds of, of possible women to look over. The women, the way she speaks about them when they're not there is, you know, she's problematic or she's left it a bit late. The way she assesses their bodies, their skin colour. She weighs them up and she makes them feel, even in person, it would be difficult to find a match for you. You know, you mustn't be too picky and you need to adjust your expectations. And what's interesting is that even though this was a show about very different culture to mine or yours, Frankie, and a different experience of dating to mine or yours, how relatable that element was and how universal that felt. Even in the Western world where I have no personal experience of arranged marriages, I don't know friends who have experienced arranged marriages, but that weight that is put on women to manage their expectations and the way that women are weighed up and found wanting and that men are given this choice is so universal. Whether you've watched the show or not, this is an important thing to read. But if you have watched that show or if you do occasionally find yourself watching shows like that, I think it's really important to read this and understand what you're seeing and understand the way it's being filtered. Also understand what it's beaming out there to millions of women, that it's okay for this chasm to exist in dating and this chasm to exist in our gendered experiences. Definitely read it. I will. Thank you for flagging. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Chaz, I shall release you so you can go and do some more freezing cold sea swimming. Thanks. I'll need to stretch out for a bit first. I've been sat on my leg and it's gone to sleep. Such an athlete. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please do rate and review, subscribe 
and tell your friends if you would like to hear more from us please also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter it comes out on a sunday morning and you can sign up at thewingwoman.co.uk you can also find us on instagram at frankie Gradin, at charlie gowans and collectively at the wingwoman underscore that's it see you next week bye bye <laughs>